to the ninth and final, really, honestly, final class of the dispossessed. <clears throat> we are um, we are totally we are totally finishing uh, class today. Yeah, Yana, that was probably your final session with the hold music. You're probably right about that. Um, stay tuned for fun guinea pigging experiment number two. You guys have been such able guinea pigs uh, this time. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what I can cook up for next time. Um, and by the way, let me begin with that. Next time, of course, is going to be the return of the shadow, uh, as we've discussed, and and uh, by which no one is shocked. But um, I think date-wise, so today being the end of this possessed class because it totally is. Um, next week is uh, American Thanksgiving, so obviously we're going to skip that. Um, I'm. Uh, Stay tuned to the uh, Mythgard um, and the uh, and the Mythgard Academy social media outlets and stuff um, for final confirmation. I'm thinking <sighs> end of the year is always so complicated with holidays and everything, and trying to plan and around my own family travel and everything. Um, there's a part of me that would want to just wait till January because if we start. You know, in like the second week of December, we're going to get one or two classes into it, and then we'll have to skip one or two weeks for holidays and stuff. So um, it's uh, anyway, yeah, I, I am going to send out an email notification as well when we get everything, when, when we have a, a link through some mechanism or other uh, and everything. Um, yeah, Tom, I'm also worried about going into withdrawal. I, I, I think that that's, that's a very that's a very grave concern. Um, yeah, so the thought of trying to start it and stopping and starting is kind of awkward. But yeah, Tom, the idea of waiting like six weeks before starting again seems crazed. So um, uh, so I probably won't do that. Anyway, I'll, I'll send out an email uh, to those of you who have you know, registered for this class and probably for the last class as well. Um, and um, uh, and uh, and well, we'll post it on social media, and we'll be you know we'll try to get the word out as 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 much as we can. We get the final information on exactly when and where. But it'll it'll uh, I probably will begin it in December, and it will probably begin the first or second uh, Wednesday. So we'll take at least one week off, maybe two, uh, and then we'll come back for the Return of the Shadow in. December, I, almost. I think when it comes to it, I can't really see myself waiting until January, though. Part of me imagines that that might be prudent, um, but um, uh, but uh, I, well, it's not that no one ever counsels prudence uh, to me, but uh, uh, but I rarely take the counsel of prudence uh, if, uh, if it when it is given. Anyway, so. As I say, more details forthcoming on that, but I'm uh, uh, but I'm excited. I'm excited to get going. I, I I have been looking forward to doing the history of the Lord of the Rings for quite some time. Um, so uh, so we will we will we will get towards that. Um, now um, Arthur wants me to remind everybody to join us in the chat room. Well, not us. I am not there. Join them in the chat room. Um, uh, and just again, for those of you who don't know what that is, if you go to mythguard.org and go to the academy page for, you know, under the academy menu, the page for the, the web page for the dispossessed class, uh, there's a, a little logo at the bottom um, for the chat room here. And uh, uh, so if you want to 
talk uh, with other people uh, live in the class uh, behind my back uh, and around the edges. You're you're, you're welcome to, do, to to be involved in that community discussion. Um, so uh, so so just there you are. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, all right. Let's. But of course, again, I won't see anything you type in there. So if you want to make a comment that I will see and, and want to, to 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 contribute directly to the ongoing discussion, do make sure to enter your uh, your comment into the chat here, and I will see that right away. All right. Let us let us move forward, or else um, or else you know, because if we don't move forward with alacrity here, the class might end on. You know, uh, like you know, Arthur, to use your phrase, an ambiguous and open-ended note, right? And we wouldn't want that, right? So I mean, whew, yeah, let's uh, let's make sure we avoid that. So, so off we go. Um, I want to. There are two main things, three, three main things I want to look at today. We spent uh, all of last time talking about Einstein's theory of relativity and uh, Shevick's. Uh, general temporal theory and looking at sort of the relationship there and the way in which uh, uh, thinking about Einstein's theory sort of inspires Shevick's theory and what that how that seems to be connected to the to the larger themes. I know that last week's class was a little a little uh, a little physics heavy, a little, a little science heavy, a little a little more Einstein in the theory of relativity than maybe you wanted, um, but. Uh, uh, but anyway, I hope it was um, I hope it was helpful. Um, and several of you have been uh, wanting, have been sort of asking me about the physics and 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 where it sort of stands and what is the relationship between you know the story that we get and and the you know the actual sort of its relationship to actual physics. So there's my best answer at that. Um, but uh, anyway, um, I want to come back tonight to looking at the sort of well. What I've been calling or been thinking of as like the political situation that is thinking about Anaris and Urus and uh, and the way that those themes are are moving forward and developing, but of course it's not just politics, right? It's not just about the, the changing political situation. Um, it's really where do we end up with how we're thinking about Urus, how we're thinking about Anaris, how we're thinking about all of these, you know, about walls and prisons and and freedom and and all the other, you know, and, and anarchy and um, you know all the things that we've been looking at all the way through. Um, so I want to I want I want to begin tonight by returning to that. Um, I was going to just jump straight into the discussion that Shevik has with the Terran ambassador, um, which I think is um, uh, uh, is is I I I think it's a really important discussion. I want to spend quite a bit of time on that um, because there's there's a sense in which I think. His conversation with the Terran ambassador is the climax of the story, right? I mean, this is the this is really the culmination of the whole plot in in a sense, several of the plots, right? The both his relationship with the physics um, and the uh, uh, Urasti and Aresti political situation, and even Shevik's own kind of belonging and you know his isolation and loneliness and Shevik as a nuknib and, uh, you know, all that stuff. Um, you know, you can really see all of that stuff kind of coming together into, uh, uh, into that conversation with the Terran ambassador. Um, but of course, it's not where the book ends, right? 
and it's not only that we get that final chapter, right? The odd-numbered chapter, right? Chapter thirteen, um, the 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 one sort of piece of imperfect alteration, that final sort of bridge chapter, right? Which finally connects, in a sense, the two halves, right? Which connects back to, uh, um, you know, both reflects chapter one, um, but is brings the Urus story forward to when it to the return to Anaris. Um, well, up to, but not including the return to Anaris, of course. Um, but in the middle there, we get another chapter, where we get another even number chapter. We get the final chapter of his time in Anaris and his decision to leave and go to Urus. You know, we finally get, we finally in one sense close the loop, right, and come back up against the beginning of chapter one and how he gets to, uh, how he ends up at the port with people throwing rocks at him in the first place. Um, and I, so I, I, I don't want to skip over that chapter because I think it's important. And I was tempted to look at it first and then end with the discussion of the uh, with the Terran ambassador because I'm like, that's really the climax, right? But again, it's um, it's not how the book does it, right? So I thought it would be untrue to the to the 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 whole sequency simultaneity shape and structure of the book to do it that way so so i won't do it that way um but then i do want to come back to the coming home thing uh at the end so we'll see hopefully we should get to the slide which inspired the title for tonight's class true voyages return uh if we can get there then i'll be doing well no we will get there we will get there it's just a question of whether it's like you know what time of day it is for Yana over in uh, uh, over in the Netherlands before we before we get there? Okay. In order to get to the Terran ambassador, we're gonna go back a tiny bit. Um, back to his this is his discussions with Sabo. Not not his discussions. Um, this is the moment when he is going to be like in his conflict with Sabo, right? So this is. Sobel's justification for rejecting the principles of simultaneity, right? When he tries to publish his book, when he gives Sobel his book for publication, and the PDC Press, which is Sobel, right, on the physics branch, right, when it rejects it, right? And so this is Sobel's explanation for why he rejects the principles of simultaneity from its initial publication. That sequency physics is the high road of chronosophical thought in the Odonian society has been a mutually agreed principle since the settlement of Anaris. Egoistic divagation from this solidarity of principles can result only in sterile spinning of impractical hypotheses without social organic utility, or repetition of the superstitious religious speculations of the irresponsible hired scientists of the prophet state of Urus. Oh, the profiteer, this is Takbir's commentary, of course, the petty-minded, envious little Odo-spouter. Uh, petty-minded, envious little Odo-spouter uh, is, uh, uh, is a lovely little insult chain uh, that you could uh, 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 choose to throw at someone um, this, uh, uh, this, this, this week. You look for your opportunity. Uh, maybe, it will, maybe, it will, maybe it will come up. Um, yeah, Julius thinking, uh, you know, that many polysyllabic words kind of equals egoism all by itself, right? Yeah, yeah, Julius, I feel like he had me at divagation, right? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I feel the same thing. But Michael, I agree with you. Odo Spouter is really interesting as an insult, right? So we can, um, 
that I included Tuckver's little diatribe at the end because I think it it offers us a really interesting frame for this for the letter, right? I mean, on the one hand, we we have framework that came before it, right? We know about Sabo. We know that Sabo is a jerk. We know that Sabo is a profiteer. Uh, we don't need Tuckver to call him one in order for us to understand that that's the case, right? But um, but 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 Odo Spouter, I agree, Michael is an especially interesting. Uh, thing for her to kind of culminate with, right? Uh, when she's condemning him for this, uh, for this, for this thing, and of course the implication, right? What were the, the the instruction we're given, right? The cue that we're given as we're as we're you know interpreting or sort of trying to understand um, what Sable is is doing here is that he is spouting Odonian language, right? Um, he's he's you know he's not quoting Odo, but he is spouting Odonian stuff, right? But it's not legitimate, right? And we've remember when when Shevet called him on this when they were having their discussion before, and Sabo criticized him, uh, criticized Shevik for not being um, uh, altruistic, right? And Shevik pauses and says. Since when did altruism become an Odonian principle, right, or an Odonian virtue? It's like it calls him on the fact that, dude, you don't even get it, right? You don't even understand Odonianism. Uh, to call something an altruist is an insult. It's not as big an insult as proprietarian, right? But it's 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 an insult to an Odonian. And here, Sabol's own understanding of Odonian of Odonianism was so was so poor. Um, that he was using non-altruistic as a critique, right? He was thinking he was he was uh, he was uh, he was insulting him, right? Um, so we are we're we're provided the cue to read Sabol's condemnation here as superficially Odonian, without the spirit of Odonianism, right? So what do we? What do we what do we learn here? What what do we see? Let's let's look more carefully at Sabol's statement here. How does he justify his what is well let me say this question another way. What is interesting about how he justifies his rejection of the book, about the terms in which he 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 he, he rejects it? What are some words or phrases that strike you as significant? Thinking about you know the, the, the bigger picture, Shevik's character, the whole Urus uh, and Aresti thing. Um, you know, we've by this point, I think we've we've become kind of sensitive to certain vocabulary and concepts and ideas, right? That we see happening throughout the book. What um, what jumps out at you as significant in uh, in in Sabol's, uh, uh observation here? See, now the cool thing uh, when I ask questions like that, when I just I'm basically asking you to make observations, right? Um, if you answer right away, you have an advantage. Because if you answer right away, then you get credit for the observation. But I'm not going to make you actually do the analysis of it, right? Uh, it's after that, right? After the observations have been made, that I then might push and be like, "So, what do we see? What's the pattern, right? What, what does this kind of add up to?" And that's a way harder question. So when I'm just asking for observations at the beginning, all you got to do is just tell me, type a word or phrase that that seems to you interesting and i won't even make you explain why right um uh so uh so what's his argument
what's his, what is the core of his argument? What does he say? Um, good, Kate uh, Neville has a bunch of things. Mutually agreed, right? Um, and I agree, Kate, we see we have the sort of the implicit opposition, right, between uh, the, the, the mutual agreement upon sequency physics, right, and egoistic divagation from the solidarity of principles, right? Those are the, that's the, the contrast there. Um, good, Kay was pointing out that, 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 that appeal to tradition, right? Since the settlement of Inaris, right? Mutually agreed since the settlement of Inaris. Um, okay, but you notice what's conspicuous about that? He's writing this in the PDC press, right? So how um how mutually agreed upon really is Anarasti society on sequency physics being the high road of chronosophical thought, right? Um, um uh, it's a little rich, isn't it? It's not just an exaggeration. I think it is an exaggeration, right? But Sobel is the spokesperson for it. Like, sequency physics is the high road of chronosophical thought, in large part because he's decided it should be, right? Um, because of his profiteering, proprietarian attitude uh, towards physics, right? Um, so he is putting words in the mouth. I mean, if there's one thing that we learn about physics and NRST society, it's that almost everyone, right? I mean, almost everyone of the, you know, of the, how many people are there on NRS? A few million, right? There's like five, maybe, who care at all or understand a thing about, uh, about these physics questions, right? Um, so we're not talking, he makes it sound as if like, it's a central pillar of Odonian society. <clears throat> you know, and Kay, I come back to your observation about the <clears throat> the significance of since the settlement of Inaris, right? It makes it sound almost as if like Odo herself had decreed this, right? Like like sequency physics is a is a, a pillar of Odonian thought. For like, there's Odo in the prison, right? Um, you know, at that in, in that uh, tower on the hill. Uh, that Shevik saw from the from from the highway, right? Uh, and she's there in her cell, like writing about how essential sequency physics is. It's that's completely completely untrue, right? So we have something which is which is we know to be not the solidarity or a mutual agreed upon thing of the entire society, but something which is already select, right? Something which is already just just a tiny tiny fraction but which tiny fraction is trying to keep out Shevik, right? Um, and so the accusation that they're turning against him is something which is hypocritical. It's not pure hypocrisy, right? I mean, it's true if they were to <clears throat> take a majority vote of like the five people on Anaris uh, who who could vote on this subject, you know, Shevik would lose the majority vote, right? It's true that most of them, that sequencing physics is what they've done. But of course, in a sense, and again, Kay, the, since the settlement of Anaris thing, uh, kind of gives away the game here too, right? In essence, that first sentence can be translated to, this is how we've always done it, 
right? This is the theory we've always held. Um, yes, it is, right? But when you're talking about scientific theories, is no one has had that theory before. Is that a sufficient argument against it? Is it even a good argument against it? Is it a relevant argument against it, right? Um, exactly as Yana was just saying, it's, it's a very kind of anti-science, uh, you know, uh, uh, way of thinking. Exactly, exactly. But of course, the anti, you know, open, you know, the sort of the, the closed-minded, uh, you know, anti-progressive uh, uh, sense of it, um, which of course is deeply, as Shevik would argue, deeply un-Odonian, right? You know, that Odonian principles are about, you know, uh, seeking, you know, you're like, you, 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 you seek personal fulfillment. You are constantly in revolution, right? So say, having somebody come forward and say, no, I have a revolutionary new way of thinking about things, um, to at least permit that person to do that and not attempt to squelch them. That is the minimum requirement of Odonian principles, right? Okay, so so we can we can sort of see how deeply problematic that uh, uh, that is, um, and the way he then turns the charge of egoism, right, which is as we see deeply hypocritical um, against Shevik, right? Um, though again, it's plausible because he is on his own, right? He is one person standing up and saying, "No, you guys are wrong." Right, um, but again, what sounds like an application of Odonian principle? It's about solidarity, right? It's about a, it's about you know being in agreement, you know, being in mutual agreement with uh, with your brothers, right? Um, but to say to to say that necessitates conformity is to be fundamentally anti-revolutionary and therefore fundamentally anti-odonian right um uh yeah exactly Kay. <clears throat> odo was one figure who saw something wrong with the status quo I exactly exactly <clears throat> you can't um to apply odonian principles as sabo was suggesting would uh, you know, Odo herself would have been harshly criticized, right, or harshly criticizable uh, by by that same by that same principle. Um, but 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 he 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 suggests an objective standard as well, right? It's not just that Shevik is the only one saying it. It's not just that he's speaking against the majority. There's more, right? Um, egoistic divagation from the solidarity of principles can result only in sterile spinning of impractical hypotheses without social organic utility or repetition of the superstitious religious speculations of the irresponsible hired scientists of the prophet state of urus right so we have two two things right first um and it's it's uh you know this this um one thing that i think is really cool is how hard these sentences are to parse. I mean, it's really easy once you kind of start these sentences running, right? And they just kind of like overwhelm you with, you know, Julie, as you were pointing out, polysyllabic words and uh, and sort of stilted syntax, right? Um, and long, complicated sentences. I mean, that's, this is, it's two sentences long, right? And she stops apparently before the end of the second sentence, right? Um, 
but uh, anyway, okay. So, but but here he's he is essentially pointing to two things, right? One is this sort of objective test of that, which well, it, but it's not really a test. It's sort of a presumption, right? He's predicting. He Sabo is predicting that the kind of egoistic divagation from solidarity that that it, right to 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 just put forward your own ideas against you know what the rest of the 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 the, the you know the against the mutual agreement what everybody has always said can result only in the sterile spinning of impractical hypotheses without social organic utility if you separate yourself from the society it's what you do cannot have social utility right you see what he's accusing Shevikov here of being a nook nib right for you to do this it's like being a nook nib right it's like refusing a, a work posting right it's well, I won't say it's the same thing as rape or murder, but it's like in the category, right? I mean, after all, again, why why are rape and murder two you know crimes which are in a sense um, which are in a sense criminal, right? Again, we don't really have crime because we don't have laws, and and there's all that kind of thing. We talked some about the the uh, NRSD criminal when we were talking about the passages with um, talking about what's his name, Tyrion. Uh, two weeks ago, but um, so I you know, understand that I'm kind of putting criminal and or you know crime in in in, in quotation marks here, but but still like uh, rape and murder are bad, right? And why are they bad? Because they they are you know it's the it's like the greatest possible breach of solidarity, right? Um, you know there, there's a sense in which it's 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 the most profit uh, the most proprietarian possible attitude to sort of uh, slight someone else's will and someone else's life and someone else's body uh in that way you know to, to just elevate your own will and your desire to such an extent and that's like the parallel that he's establishing here someone i forget it was a while back uh mentioned that the word sterile was a really interesting one right um and i agree it is it is interesting right the point is it's it can't be fruitful Right, nothing will come of this. It's sterile. It's impractical. It won't have any organic utility. Why? Because it doesn't grow out of the social. It can't have social organic utility because it doesn't grow out of the social organism. Right. So it, it this this is this is the work of someone who is rejecting the social organism. Right. Like like a nuknip, like a like a like a murderer, like a rapist. Right. Um. So that's one option. Right. There's only there are two things that this kind of egoistic divagation from the solidarity of principles right can 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 lead to. One is that right this like nuknibitude right. The second is a repetition of the superstitious religious speculations of the irresponsible hired scientists of the prophet state of Urus right. Um, it is so impractical right it is so sterile impractical and uh non-useful right non-utilitarian um that it's like the superstition religion of urus right um and even the like the hired scientists of the prophet state of urus notice he's not actually claiming that there's anything profiteering or proprietarian in 
either in Shevik's actual argument or even in the fact that Shevik is doing it, right? But he's just, the actual, the, the literal purport of his sentence is that it is like the superstitions of Urus, right? But by throwing in the hired prophet state stuff, right, he associates it with that without actually accusing it of being propertarian, right? Um, so, you know, that's really kind of cunningly, he gets kind of two for the price of one there, right? Um, you wouldn't want to fall back into just like, useless superstitious ideas like they have on urus right because that would make us like urus and and let me remind you of how horrible urus is right um brian exactly brian uh dimmick does a great job of pointing of course to the fundamental hypocrisy again of what sabo is saying here and this is wonderful brian brian says sabo was making sequency into a religious dogma for anaris while criticizing the religious speculation of urus exactly exactly the um, the, 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 he, of course, he's not openly accusing Shevik of propertarianism, but he is showing it himself, right? He is suggesting that Shevik's speculations can only lead to, or, you know, one of the only things they could lead to would be superstitious religious speculations. And yet he is asserting a kind of, uh, you know, as you say, uh, Brian, making sequency into a religious dogma, right? Um, we can't, this cannot be even called into into question, right? The only thing that, you know, it's so, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and yeah, Rachel, exactly, he is not at all, that's a great observation. Rachel says he's, uh, uh, he, he doesn't exactly seem to be interacting with Shevik's theory, not at all, just trying to sway people's opinion about it. Um, because Rachel, don't forget, nobody is gonna understand the book, right? So it's not like they're gonna read the principles of simultaneity and be like, Oh wow, yeah, that was like who cares? They're not going to understand it, right? Nobody's going to understand it. Um, he just doesn't want Shevik to get any credit in the small scientific community that there is, right? He's trying to suppress him, um, and it seems he doesn't want it published on Oris either, right? Um, but uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, yeah, Rachel, it's it's there's there's, there's really nothing here about Shevik's theory itself. Okay, so. Several things that we see here, therefore, in this passage, right? One is, as we've seen from the beginning, this this is a one of the most um, one of the most elaborate, one of the most forceful instances of this tendency to hypocrisy within the NRST society that we've been seeing from the beginning, right? Um, so we have that, right? The the evident hypocrisy of Sabel. But we also see the way in which it's more than just the example of like a person being hypocritical, though, right? More than any of the other examples of hypocrisy that we've seen since way back in chapter two, this one shows most clearly. And again, it's really, it's really, it's identified. It's it's labeled as such by Tuckfair, right? It's an illustration, not just of the again, not just of the hypocritical outlook of one person, but of the way in which. The Odonian principles themselves have been turned around by the Odonian society, right? So that uh, now the, the problem with Anaris is not necessarily that Odonian principles have failed, right? Or the Odonian experiment has failed, but that people no longer understand Odonianism, right? It's not that they've applied Odonianism and it didn't work out. It's that they're no longer applying Odonianism. Um, the, the sort of 
pseudo-Odonianism that they have kind of come to is actually turned around and, 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 and is now different. I mean, if you think about it, um, the contrast that they keep making is to the, you know, the hired scientist of the prophet state of Urus, right? And it seems to be the, you know, IEO, the, the you know, the Iyadi society that, uh, that Shevik goes and stays with and visits, which of course, as we learn, was where the NRST society came from, right? That's where, that's, that's where Odo was, that's where Odo was imprisoned and lived and died. Um, that's where the, you know, the same streets that Shevik is protesting in, you know, with the working class, um, you know, are, this is the same place that the, uh, the, the protests that led to the, to the, to the, to the settlement of Anaris, um, were made as well. So, that's their so when they think of Urus, they just think of Aeo, but there's more to Urus than Aeo, right? Um, we also have Thu, for instance, as the other what seems to be the other major player on that planet. Um, and Thu, uh, remember that Chifoilisk, the Thuvian, who is uh, uh, you know, sort of not exactly trying to recruit, but kind of trying to recruit Shevik, at least trying to put him on his guard. Um, if he can't get him to come to Thu and give his secrets to Thu. Uh, he wants at least to make sure or to try to inhibit Shevik from uh, from giving any secrets to Aeo. But anyway, um, Shefoyalisk, remember he claims that he his people are like the NRST, right? You should come to our society because we, we're like you, right? Um, we're, um, <clears throat> we live in solidarity also. And Shevik points out, no, you're a third thing. Right, you're not just a capitalist society run by the run by the rich like IEO is. <clears throat> you're a socialist, but you're totally state-run, right? Um, uh, so it's you know like you, you did he that they they the the will of the state is absolute in Thu, right? So <clears throat> Shevik does not in fact feel any closer to the Thuvians than he feels to the people of IEO. Um, but as a result, I mean, I think just the brief introduction we get to Thu uh, is interesting to me because we can begin to see how actually something increasingly like the Thuvian state is growing in Anaris, right? Um, the, uh, and this is one of the things I think that Shevik is pointing to when he talks about the kind of the, the tyranny of... Um, the tyranny of of uh, of conformity, right? Conformity to the they don't yet have an official state, capital S, which enforces things, but they have an unofficial state, which unofficially enforces things, right? And that where people are not really free, right? They're not officially enslaved to the state as they are in Thu, um, but they are increasingly unofficially enslaved to the majority but as we see with Sable it's not necessarily even the majority Sable is here manipulating these terms in order to increase his own personal power right in the name of the state I mean the solidarity right um well, let's keep going but anyway remember the difficult the thorny position that Sable placed Shevikin from the beginning, right? The the sort of openly un and unodonian nature of his 
you know, profiteering attitude uh, towards the publications, right? You know, the way that he took uh, from the beginning, right? The way that he took Shevik's publication and claimed credit for it, right? Um, we talked at the time about the thorny position that that put Shevik in, right? When he, Sabol, acts so flagrantly against the spirit of Odonian principles, you can't object to it, right? You can't object to it without yourself sounding like you're breaking Odonian principles, right? If he says, no, that's not yours, it's mine. Well, now, who's the proprietarian now, Shevik, right? Um, and that's the really insidious thing about the, what seems to be really the self-conscious, the deliberate hypocrisy of, um, of Sambal. And that's what makes it different from the hypocrisy of like the, the nursery maid, right? In, um, uh, in in chapter two, or even in the kind of horrible um, speaking and learning group facilitator, right? Uh, also in chapter two, it wasn't clear that either one of those people were really conscious of their hypocrisy. Sabal is and man maneuvers it and manipulates it, right? Um, let's look at the reaction here. So again, this is the issue. You know, the issue is can he get his book published? It's been rejected, right? And this is the this is the rejection that he's getting. This is the conversation he has with Takver um, when Takver is trying to convince him to get the book published. Um, don't look at it that way, Chev. It's the book that's important. The ideas. Listen, we want to keep this child to be to be born with us as before before Sadik's birth. Um, we want to love it. But if for some reason it were to die if we kept it, it could only live in a nursery. If we never could set eyes on it or know its name, if we had that choice, which would we choose? To keep the stillborn or to give life? I don't know, he said. He put his head in his hands, rubbing his forehead painfully. Yes, of course, yes, but this, but I... Brother, dear heart, Takfer said. She clenched her hands together on her lap, but she did not reach out to him. It doesn't matter what name is on the book. People will know. The truth is the book. I am that book, he said. Then he shut his eyes and sat motionless. Takfer went to him then, timidly, touching him gently as if she touched a wound. What do you notice here? We see him struggling squarely with this issue, right? Um, Yes, of course it would be better to give life and not be able to be connected with it than to have it still to have the baby stillborn, right? Um, and the analogy to the book is a like a pretty good one, right? Um, he has to either give it up or well he has, to, he has to give it up in one way or the other, right? Um, he has to either give it up to Sabol and not get credit for it and not have it be published in the way that he wants. Um, but um, or he has to not let it get published, right? Those seem to be his only two choices. Either you give up the baby or you allow the baby to be stillborn, right? Um, so yes, of course you give life instead of hanging on to the child even at the expense of its own life, right? And yeah, of course you don't, he's, 
it's not right for him to hold on to it and say, mine, mine, right? And so again, we see that same struggle with reacting to what Sabo is doing, reacting to the injustice of what Sabo is doing, and yet wanting himself to be true to Odonian principles, right? Noam asks why there are even names on books, which is a really great question, Noam. Um, and the answer to me is not at all obvious why they would. Um, you know, ascribe authorship, um, unless it's to facilitate conversation, right? Like it's good for you to know who wrote this book so that in case you want to follow up on it, you know whom to talk to, right? I mean, that's a reason, I guess, but it um, that doesn't even seem to me to be a, a totally sufficient one. Um, yeah, Yana was just thinking the same thing. You still need to know who to go to for more information. But of course, that's even, even that's only good for the lifetime of the person, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's not uh, it's not at all clear why that should even be a thing. Notice Talkler's appeal, right? It doesn't matter what name is on the book. Now, notice she she doesn't say it doesn't matter what name's on the book. Don't ego eyes, right? She doesn't say that. People will know the truth is the book. People will know, right? So she says, Sabo can't win, right? Um, the book itself is the truth. People will know. I am that book. The truth is the book, she says. I am that book, he says. Um, remember? In, back in chapter two, when he was talking about being identified with an Aris, right? How the Anaresti were identified with an Aris, and how you, you know, an Anaresti could no longer, no more leave an Aris than Tyrion could cease to be Tyrion. He might, he might pretend he was somebody else, right? Says young Shevik to the future playwright, right? An actor, excellent actor, we're told. Um, but you can't really do it, right? You can't really cease to be who you are. Um, I am that book. To compromise the book, right? To allow Sable not only to claim it, but to change it, right? Because he knows that the book is going to be cut up, right? That Sable is not only just, he's not only wanting to claim credit for it, but he is wanting to change it into something which does not refute his own sequency theory, or at least the sequency theory that he has established his own career upon, whether or not the ideas were his own, which it seems like they aren't mostly, if at all. Um, but um, but it's not just that, right? It's not just that he's, he's so he, he's, he's going to make it support sequency theory, right? And, uh, and also take credit for it. So anything that is new will take credit for it. Anything that is not new in it will support the things that he, Sabo, is already famous for, right? Um, so again, it's not just about the egoizing. It's not just about who gets credit. Um, it's not just the proprietarian element. It's the book itself. Right? The, this thing, this job, this work that he's been doing will be thwarted, right? Um, in fact, what would the book become? Um, well, sterile, impractical without social organic utility, right? That's what the book would become once Sabo gets 
his hands on it. Um, but it's more than just even that, right? He identifies himself with the book, right? I am that book. That seems like egoizing, right? I mean, in almost a, the purest sense. Um, to say, it's about me, right? I mean, if that's not egoizing, what is, right? And yet, I'm not sure that he's wrong. And the interesting thing is that later on, neither is Takver, right? So with this, coming back to this later on, I was wrong, wasn't I, about the book, about letting Sabo cut it up and put his name on it? It seemed right. It seemed like setting the work before the workman, pride before vanity, community before ego, all that. But it wasn't really that at all, was it? It was a capitulation, a surrender to Sabo's authoritarianism. I don't know. It did get the thing printed. The right end, but the wrong means, says Takfair. So they seem to agree that in the end, the end was achieved, right? Um, by the way, it accomplished something else too, right? I mean, the end was accomplished. Many ends were accomplished by this. It's not just that it got the book out there, right? Um, because the book in that form wasn't very useful and uh, uh, Shevik didn't think much of it. But remember that he included an uncut manuscript of his book in the packet that was being sent uh, to Urus. And it seems pretty clear that it's that work. It's the uncut manuscript that got sent to Urus, which was what won him the Seo Owen Prize, right? And uh, what got him his recognition and his invitation uh, to Urus, right? Um, that, that was a big deal, right? I mean, every so in a sense, everything that happened, his whole his trip to Urus and 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 the general temporal theory and everything, right, could not have happened had the book not been published. Because if it hadn't been published, he certainly would not have been able uh, to send that manuscript to Urus. So, right end, right, but the wrong means. That so this is Takfer's final analysis of the whole this whole Sobel situation, the publication situation, right? Right end, but wrong means. Um, they shouldn't have capitulated to Sobel, right? They shouldn't have given in. And remember, this is in the context of that conversation about Tyran and about submitting to solidarity, right? Of conforming to the common opinion and giving up, therefore, your right to be a revolutionary, right? Um, so yes, it achieved the end, but but by a kind of conformity, a kind of surrender, which is not okay, right? The surrender, their surrender to Sabo's authoritarianism was like the surrender of Chifoyalisk to the authoritarianism of his government, right? He's an enthusiastic supporter of Thu, right? He believes in his country. He obeys and, and, and does anything, would do anything that they ask him to do, right? Um, that's not, of course, what Rashevik gets with Sabo, but that's the path, right? Um, that, uh, that 
she claims they're walking down. So okay, so this idea of right and wrong means let's um let's then move forward to the conversation with the Terran ambassador, thinking about that. I know almost nothing about your world, Shevik. I know only what the Orasti tell us, since your people won't let us come there. I know, of course, that the planet is arid and bleak, <clears throat> and how the colony was founded, that it is an experiment in non-authoritarian communism, that it has survived for 170 years. I have read a little of Odo's writings, not very much. I thought that it was all rather unimportant to matters on Oris now, <clears throat> rather remote, an interesting experiment. But I was wrong, wasn't I? It is important. Perhaps the Naris is the key to Oris. The revolutionists in Neo, they come from that same tradition. They weren't just striking for better wages or protesting the draft. They were not only socialists, they are anarchists. They were striking against power. Okay, so um, she is, yeah, Arthur, she is dismissive at first, right? or rather she's sort of confessing to having been dismissive. She knew almost nothing about it and didn't think it was important. Why? Because she's the ambassador to Urus, right? So she needs to understand Urus and Erasti culture. And right after this, she tells Shevik her own opinion of Urus, right? That A, they from Terra view Urus as a paradise, right? It's like what a world should be, right? So in that, she and Shevik had the same experience, right? Um, but secondly, of course, she's, she, she says, it's not, yes, the rich are very rich, right? There's a big gap between the rich and the poor, but it's not that bad, right? Conditions aren't so terrible. Um, you know, the poor are oppressed, but they're not that oppressed, right? Um, which is interesting, right? But what does she mean? In what sense is Anaris the key to Urus? She says she's come to suspect that perhaps Anaris is the key to Urus. What does that mean? Um, let's keep looking, looking at where she goes down there, right? The revolutionists in Neo, they come from that same tradition, the Odonian tradition. They weren't just striking for better wages or protesting the draft. Okay, so she finds it significant that they were not just doing those two things. So had they only been striking for better wages, right? They're not getting enough money. They want more money, right? Presumably, what I'm understanding her to, 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 to say here is that had that been true, she wouldn't have thought it that important, right? Um, it wouldn't have changed her view of USL. Um, and because you see, to strike for better wages is still fundamentally proprietarian, right? Profiteering. I mean, it may be totally understandable and everything, but it is, right? We want more money. I mean, nobody on Anaris is going to be all, we want more money, right? <clears throat> so it doesn't challenge her concept of the basic idea. Right, of Erasti society. Or if they were protesting the draft. Again, that's understandable, right? Um, protesting the draft would not, the draft would not rock her view of Urus. 
them being socialists would not rock her view of Horus, right? Because there are, <clears throat> there are socialist societies on Horus, right? That's part of the paradigm. But to be anarchists, that's the thing that she comes back to, right? So the thing which challenges her whole view of, of Urus, her understanding of Urus, is that the revolutionists in Neo were anarchists striking against power, not against superior wealth, right? Please distribute the wealth a little more fairly, right? We want to raise, right? Um, it's not just that, right? It's not just we don't want to fight in this war, right? Um, it's not just we want goods to be distributed, you know, like in a, so, in, a, in a socialist way, right? It's against power in general. Um, and be, because she never paid attention to an RS, right? Because she never thought the NRSD experiment... Uh, well, she says she never thought it was important. What becomes clearer is that she never really understood what it was at all. I mean, she's kind of technically right, right? It's an experiment in non-authoritarian communism, right? Yes, yeah, that's right. That's right, right? Non-authoritarian communism kind of kind of describes it. Um, but it's like she never really understood that. She never really parsed what that meant. And when you do think about what that means, it helps you to see what really does kind of bind the Orastes societies altogether, right? If you are just have an Orasti perspective, it's easy to think, as it appears that almost everybody in Orus does think, that Thu and Aeo are opposites, right? I mean, this they're like, I mean, if there's a spectrum, they're on opposite ends of the spectrum, right? One way in which I would understand this sense in which her view of Oros has been totally changed by coming to understand Anaris and therefore coming to understand better the protests uh, and the attempted revolution in Neo is to suddenly recognize that Thu and Aeo are on, you know, they're just like different items, on, but they're on the same end of the spectrum with Anaris on the other end, right? Um, what they have in common is power. Power wielded differently, right? Structured differently, but still power. Um, whereas the core idea, right, of Odonianism is against power. True in that sense, really anarchical. Um, and Michael, of course, you're right to say that, of course, we see power structures still exist on Anaris even without official government, right? Badab is arguing that from the beginning, and it sounds like he's just kind of crazy, right? You know, at least Chevik wants to think that he's just, uh, you know, a crazy conspiracy theorist. Um, but, of course, we see that it's perfectly true, and naturally, um, he himself, um, Chevik himself, quickly recognizes this, can quickly recognizes this, recognize this from Sobel, right? Um, so... That is the sense in which I think she's saying um, perhaps Anaris is the key to Urus. I don't think she means 
when she says Anaris is the key to Urus, I don't believe... Like, what, there are two different senses in which she could be using the word or the image of the key, right? Um, one sense is as a key that opens a lock, and the other, of course, is as a key like an answer key, right? I think she's using it in the answer key sense. It's the key to Urus, like it's the key to understanding Urus. It's the, the, the critical element that reveals the thing, right? That's what I understand her to be intending when she says, perhaps Anaris is the key to Urus. Um, now that I get Anaris, now that I see Anaris and I understand it and I see where it comes from, I, I, I begin to understand how, how, I begin to understand, to really wrap my brain around what the Odonian principles are and that they came out of the Orasti society and what that means and what that meant for the revolutionaries and now I get it. Right now, I can, and but not only do I get Odonianism, that helps me to now understand the Orasti society in a whole new way. Right, but of course, key also means the thing that opens a lock. And in a book that has been so interested in walls and finding ways through them and prisons with locked doors we can't just pass over the word key and be like, oh, I'm sure it's just answer key. I do think she means answer key. But in this book, when someone's talking about a key, we can't help but think of the prison. I can't help anyway, but think of the prison, right? Um, so I think there's a double meaning there. She is both describing the effect that understanding Anaris has on her, on her understanding of Oris, right? It's like the answer key, right? This is the essence. This reveals the essence to me of Orasti society in ways in which I've never seen it. But of course, it's also possible that it's the key that opens the lock. And I think that's one of the things that we begin to see. He explains what his theory is and what it can do, right? And he says it's, uh, it's he expl is explaining the antibol, right? The Orasti want the general theory uh, the general temporal theory, because they believe it will lead them to instantaneous uh, 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 travel, right? That they can just they can they can travel without passage of time, um, simultaneity, right? You can just like be you're be in one place and then you're immediately in another place sequentially and simultaneously, right? Um, and Shevik says, no, he doesn't think his theory is going to lead to to instantaneous travel, but communication, yeah, the Ansible, right? Uh, being instantaneously communicating over light years of distance, right? And he says the Ansible is simple. The simplicity of physics. So I could pick up the Ansible and talk with my son in Delhi and with my granddaughter, who was five when I left and who lived 11 years while I was traveling from Terra to Urus in a nearly light speed ship. And I could find out what's happening at home now, not 11 years ago. And decisions could be made and agreements reached and information shared. I could talk to diplomats on Chifawar. You could talk to physicists on Hain. It wouldn't take ideas a generation to get from world to world. Do you know, Shevik, I think your very simple matter might change the lives of all the billions of people in the nine known worlds? He nodded. It would make a league of worlds possible. A federation. We have been held apart by the years, the decades between leaving and arriving between question and response. It's as if you had invented human speech. We can talk. At last, we can talk together.
um, this uh, this by the way is um, a thing that um, a lot of people kind of forget about right um, I've uh, I, I, I've been thinking about, and I, I, I recently started for fun uh, rewatching some old uh, Star Trek episodes, the original Star Trek. It's the you know this year's the 50th anniversary, so before uh, 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 2016 ended, I wanted to watch a little Star Trek, which I have in a long time. And it's funny how like, Star Trek is aware of this issue, but they just kind of try to wave their hands at it, right, and pretend and to sort of make it go away. But the idea that you can just push a button and talk to somebody that's light years away. Again, Einstein's theory is premised upon the fact that light speed is the fastest that anything can travel. It is impossible, therefore, to convey any information of any kind faster than the speed of light. So if you have two stars that are 11 light years apart from each other, right, Therefore, it can take it. It will. You cannot. If you radio out to them, the radio waves that you send won't get there for eleven years, right? Um, and uh, so, anyway, it's it's. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this is a. This is the. This is a, so. On, on the one hand, I was delighted just to see Ursula Le Guin not leaving out this issue, right? Um, but of course, it's not been made a big deal of in the book to this point. But there's a good reason why, right? Because of course, everybody everybody knows, right? First of all, most of the book has been focused on Urus and Inaris, and they don't need 11 years, right? They're close enough that they can, they can speak a lot more closely than that. So the issue of how to communicate with Terra and how to communicate with Hain is um, not really been a central concern of anybody in the book. Right until this point, so uh, um, uh, it's understandable that we would never have been asked to think about this. Um, but of course, in this passage, um, you know the the Terran ambassador, whose name I'm totally forgetting. If you somebody remind me of the Terran ambassador's name, um, anyway, the Terran ambassador is uh, is emphasizing this strongly, right, to contextualize the problem, the gap. The gap between leaving and arriving, right? Um, we get this interesting image, right, of a world which has been a slave to sequency, right? Um, if all you have is sequency, this is what happens, right? If you're just you're stuck in that in that time sequence, if simultaneity is not possible, right? Then here's where you end up. And yeah, I, I don't mean to suggest, guys, that uh, I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm not trying to imply that Le Guin is the first one to think about this problem or anything like that, or to suggest that. I mean, the Ansible is um, is it's, you know this is not uh, I, I, the idea of simultaneous. Communication over light years and stuff. This is a known issue. Um, she's not. She's not totally invented this question. I'm not trying to claim that. Um, what I am pointing to is the significance of that in this context, in the context of this story, right? 
Um, as I said, this is not an issue that's been a primary focus all the way through, but it picks up on things that have been a primary focus, right? From the basic issue of sequency and simultaneity. Um, Noam, I love your uh, your observation. Noam, Noam says sort of jokingly, um, when they have the Ansible, right? It will be, he says, it'll be the largest speaking and listening group ever, right? Well, exactly, Noam, right? It brings us, it brings us right back to that, right? Sharing will now be possible, right? Um, we can, we can now share. There's something um, sort of, I don't know, intrinsically, like they've been, they've been, isolated right she's isolated from her family right she uh the the and anything she says to them won't be heard by them for 11 years um uh yeah now brian you're absolutely right brian says you know anaris and Uras don't share at all now even when it is possible so more than just the ansible is needed absolutely but what we get is the sort of the model, the concept. Remember, when he came to Urus, he wanted to establish solidarity, right? He wanted to break down to that's that is at least one sense in which he wanted to break down the wall, to unbuild, excuse me, the wall, right? The wall between Urus and Anaris is explicitly one of the walls that he's attempting to unbuild, right? There should be brotherhood, there should be sharing between Urus and Anaris, he argues when he comes down. Right. Um, but uh, so in some ways, Brian, I think the way that I would put it is the the communication gap between uh, Urus and Terra is at least an image of, right, sort of a, a metaphor for the gap between Urus and Inaris, right? No, they're not. Sharing is not happening, right? Well, so... We know that the you know the, 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 the what the book really has been interested in is the relationship between Oris and Anaris over here, right? But we're sort of being brought back to that by thinking about well, look, here's the situation in which sharing has not been at all possible, right? It's just it can't happen. Um, Shevik is now able to bridge that. He's now able to unbuild that wall and make it possible. It's like inventing human speech. Right. Um, and so, yeah, Yana, it is interesting, right, that he, he kind of he fails to break down the cultural wall between Oris and Anaris, but he does break down the wall of space itself, Yana, as you say, space and time, really, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so the way that this serves, as, as I say, as a, as a kind of, but is this a foretaste, right, is achieving this kind of sharing among not just between Oris and Terra, but among all of the worlds, right? What he has done is create a situation in which solidarity and sharing is now possible. Is that a foretaste of what could might happen between Oris and Anaris, right? I mean, you're very right, of course, to point out, Brian, that it's not it hasn't been happening, right? But well, neither has simultaneous conversation been possible between Oris and Terra, right? Is that a thing that is going to be achieved just as the ansible? Is something that is now achievable thanks to his theory, right? Thanks to his physics, is uh, is 
sharing in solidarity among Urus and Anaris now possibly going to be, uh, uh, well, possible, right, um, uh, after his visit, conceivably. But let's, let's, let's keep going. Um, oops, I forgot to change my title. <laughs> I forgot what the title was supposed to be. Uh, I made up my own slides this week, and I screwed them up, unshockingly. Um, I wonder what this was. Hang on. I'm now all curious. I want to look it up. My actual title was, um, uh, oh, yeah, right and wrong means. That's what this one was supposed to be, right and wrong means. Okay, look, he said, I must explain to you why I have come to you and why I came to this world also. I came for the idea, for the sake of the idea, to learn, to teach, to share in the idea. On Anaris, you see, we have cut ourselves off. We don't talk with other people, the rest of humanity. I could not finish my work there. And if I had been able to finish it, they, would, they did not want it. They saw no use in it. So I came here. Here is what I need. The talk, the sharing, an experiment, uh, an experiment in the light laboratory that proved something it wasn't meant to prove. A book of relativity theory from an alien world. The stimulus I need. And so I finished the work at last. It is not written out yet, but I have the equations and the reasoning. It is done. But the ideas in my head aren't the only ones important to me. My society is also an idea. I was made by it. An idea of freedom, of change, of human solidarity. An important idea. And though I was very stupid, I saw at last that by pursuing the one, the physics, I am betraying the other. I am letting the propertarians buy the truth from me. What else could you do, Shevik? Is there no alternative to selling? Is there not such thing as the gift? Okay. Right ends, wrong means. Um, yeah, Karita, remember, remember why he got kicked out of the sharing circle, out of the speaking and listening circle? What did the really, really mean f facilitator tell him? Karita was just bringing this up again uh, in the comments. Do, do you remember? He was egoizing yet, Neil. He was he was being accused of not only stealing the idea of the like rock not hitting the tree. Um, but of trying to claim credit for it and therefore to elevate himself in the eyes of others and make other people think he was smart seems to be, I think, what the facilitator thought he was doing, right? Um, he was showing off, right? He was egoizing. Um, but more, more. Uh, when he was talking, right? Um, yeah, when he was talking, he wasn't sharing. He was egoizing. He he was he was sent out to find another circle that was operating on his level. Re remember what the facilitator says when he interrupts him. Shevik's in the middle of talking, right, of explaining the the joke as he calls it about the rock and the tree. Um, remember what the what the facilitator interrupts him with. What does he say? He interrupts him by saying. Is anyone here interested in this? Right? And this is clearly what would be called a question that expects the answer no, right? 
um, certainly the facilitator is not interested in it, right? So, so in the child Shevik, we get him, and of course we talked about at the time, the irony is he was sharing. In fact, he was sharing something very personal and important to him, right? Um, and he was trying to show it and give it to people, right? But they didn't want it, right? So we saw that, you know, and he was sent off to find somebody else that might want to, might, might be on his level, right? And that's, of course, exactly what he's going to do, right? When he leaves Anaris and goes to Urus, what's he trying to find? People who are operating on his level, right? Which is not below, but above the other people, in fact, at least as far as the physics is concerned, right? Um, but his desire to share has not ever departed him, right? Even though he keeps getting kicked out of speaking and listening circles one after another, in a sense, right? Um, but Shevik says, in the end, his assessment is that it was um, uh, although it was the right end, it was the wrong means, right? In the end, he let the proprietarians buy the truth from him, right? Um, remember how he sort of confessed to bargaining? To having this kind of, and, and, and at the time, he wasn't condemning himself for it or even satirizing himself. He seemed to be kind of proud of it, right? Like I, I, I you know, I'm in Oris now, so in Oris, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to bargain. I'm gonna try to speak your language, just like you learned the Attic, right? So I'll try to bargain with you. Um, now he realizes, just as when he compromised with Sabol, it was the wrong means, right end, but wrong means, right? Um, notice how he is explicitly paralleling, just in case. We haven't been doing that yet, right? We have this explicit parallel being drawn between the idea of the general temporal theory and the idea of the NRST society, right? Um, what else could I do other than selling the truth to the proprietarians? Is there not such a thing as a gift? And now, Karita, you're right that it is a complicated thing. The idea of gift giving is a complicated thing in a culture where property doesn't exist, right? Where you can, you don't have things. Um, and uh, Rachel Draper had just been asking, doesn't the idea of gift imply altruism, right? Um, I would say it depends on the attitude, right? I mean, potentially, sure, absolutely. Um, what's the difference between altruism and sharing, right? What's the difference between altruism and solidarity? To say, I have strength and abilities and I'm going to go, because there are people in need over there in that, you know, distant uh, settlement, right, on Anaris, so I'm going to go and I'm going to go help out there because I'm needed there, right? That's a totally normal NRST situation. Is that not altruism, right? They need me, so I'll go to help them, right? You could do it in that attitude, and if you did it with that attitude, you'd be doing it for non-Odonian 
reasons, right? Exactly, Tomas, I agree. Altruism implies sort of a difference in level, right? Um, altruism is not a mutual sharing, right? It's the gift of one to another, right? Um, and there is that sense of hierarchy in altruism, right? It's like the word condescending, right? The word condescending, which is always, always, always an insult to a modern person, right? Whenever we call somebody condescending, we mean it to be an insult, right? But that's not the origin of the word condescending. Condescending was a compliment. If you had, you know, the landed squire or the gentleman or the nobleman down, right, who would descend down with and come alongside the peasant, right? And you would go and you would talk to you, visit the peasant, and you would help the peasant, and you would, you know, you would not maintain your dignity, right? That's a very good thing. That was a compliment, right? Because you, you, you were higher, and if you do descend to come down and be with, that's literally what condescend means, right? To be down with, right? To come down and be with somebody else. Um, condescending in, includes both the idea of togetherness and the idea of descent, right? Um, well, that, that's a good thing. It's always an insult to us, certainly to modern Americans, because we don't believe that anybody's above, right? To be condescending is to imply you're above in the first place. That's the problem, right? Um, uh, so that's the difference, I would say, between altruism and sharing. Altruism is a form of profiteering, is a form of, it's like, it's proprietarianism, right? It's because of the attitude that you have, it's, it suggests a lack of solidarity, ultimately, right? Um, in order to be altruistic, in order to give to somebody, you've got to have something yourself, right? Your hands aren't empty, right? Um, so, yeah. Um, is Shevik being altruistic? And I would say no. If he were just saying, okay, Ms. Terran Ambassador, nobody's reminded me of what her name is yet. Okay, Ms. Terran Ambassador, um, I will bestow this knowledge upon you. I'm going to give this to the Terrans, right? Or a gift from me to you, right? That would be altruism. But to say, could you help me in making this public, which is what he does, right? I want to share this everybody. I want, I want, I want to give it to Tara. I want to give it to Urus. I want to give it to Hain. I want to give it to Anaris. Right? I want to give it to everybody. Right? That's sharing. Right? That's solidarity. Um, that's Odonian. That's not altruistic. I would say Kang. Thank you, Yana. I appreciate that, Kang. Um, good. Good. Um, yeah. Oh, Karita, I wouldn't argue against the giving of gifts. Um, I myself don't totally agree with. Odonian principles. Um, I'm just arguing from within the framework of Odonian principles uh, when I uh, when I talk about altruism. Um, yeah, don't worry. About it. Giving gifts is awesome. Let's keep going. Shevik gets angry. Right. It was for that idea that I came here too. For Anaris, since my people refused to look outward, I thought I might make others look at us. 
I thought it would be better not to hold part behind a wall, but to be a society among the others, a world among the others, giving and taking. But there I was wrong, absolutely wrong. Why so? Surely because there is nothing, nothing on Urus that we Anaresti need. We left with empty hands 170 years ago, and we were right. We took nothing, because there is nothing here but states and their weapons, the rich and their lies, and the poor and their misery. There is no way to act rightly with a clear heart on Urus. There is nothing you can do that profit does not enter into, and fear of loss, and the wish for power. Doesn't this sound like the young Shevik? Doesn't this sound like the Shevik who shouted down Tyrion at the end of chapter two? And it, it's interesting, right? Um, this is another one of those moments, where, like another one of those sequencing and simultaneity moments, right? Um, at the end of chapter two, when Shevik and Tyrion were having that argument, we've talked, of course, about the intrinsic irony of that. You know, like the dramatic irony. When we hear young Shevik saying to young Tyrion um, you know, about how appalling an idea it is for, how impossible indeed it is for uh, an NRST to leave Anaris, right? Um, we already know that he's going to do it. We've already seen in the previous chapter that Shevik is going to grow up to leave Anaris for Urus, right? Um, so we have this dramatic irony, right? This um, that we know that the events of his life are going to change. You know, he's going to have this revolution. He's going to be, lead a revolution against his own thinking, right? Um, now we see him coming back around, returning to his, in some sense, to his, to his previous thinking. Now the dramatic irony, now when we think back to that passage, there's yet another layer of, of irony added to it, right? Yes, he's going to, change his ideas and decide to go to Urus. But what we did not even realize now uh, and only realize on a second reading is that that second layer of irony or third layer, depending on how you number the layers, um, that in fact, he's gonna later on say that he was right all along, right? Now his departure for Urus and the stuff that he says in chapter one becomes ironic, right? Um, There is nothing on Urus that we NRSD need. He no, he no longer wants solidarity with Urus, he suggests, right? Not really. Um, but of course, what else has happened? His own ideas have been expanded, right? His own horizons have been expanded. He now, again, back to the Ansible thing, right? He can now share with, it's not just about Urus and Naris. Now he has a bigger view of it, right? Um, to see that he felt that Naris had cut itself off from the from Urus, right, and therefore was not really sharing. Um, but remember, remember the appeal that uh, Atro, the friendly old physicist, uh, his former ally, um, still his ally in a sense, right, uh, was making the appeal that that Atro made to him, right, for Setian physics, um, and Atro was unashamedly like, "It's you and me, right? It's Urus and Anaris against Hain and Terra, right." Um, so, uh, you know, share it with us, but don't share it with them. We need to maintain the distinction, the, the aristocratic distinction of uh, Setian physics compared to, compared to those other losers, right? Um, 
In other words, it's the same situation as that we on Anaris don't want to share with Urus. It's just a little bit wider, right? Um, yeah. Now, Noam is saying that what uh, Shevik is saying here is kind of a jerk move, saying that there's nothing you need from Urus when you just said you needed it for your physics. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, Noam, what he's talking about, he's talking about, he's talking about the other idea, right? Remember the, the two ideas? He was talking about one was his theory, his physics theory, and the other was the idea of Anaris. Um, so what he is saying here is talking about that, Anaris will not profit from um, solidarity with Urus, right? Urus has nothing to offer Anaris. Um, what this is is kind of a, in a sense, it's like a second revolution, right, against Anaris. Um, let's reestablish the terms of the settlement, right? We're fine with that. Um, but does, does this mean that Shevik has abandoned his principles? Well, no, he's still going to share his theory with Urus, right? He's not putting the wall back up. He's not putting the wall back up, but he is saying the empty hands are better, right? We don't, we, we won't profit from Urus. Um, but if you think about that sentence, it seems the more conspicuous, right? Of course, Anarish is going to profit from Urus. That would be profiteering, right? Um, that would be proprietarian of them. And that's the fundamental problem, right? In a sense, he's kind of come back to where we started in chapter one. That is with the fundamental difference in the way, the fundamental lack of communication. Um, no, Urus and Anaris don't aren't divided by light years of space and therefore by years of time in their attempts to communicate. But the gulf between them was even wider, as we saw back in chapter one with him and the doctor, right? Um, you can't. There is nothing you can do that profit does not enter into, and fear of loss and the wish for power. The whole way they understand everything, the entire mental paradigm of Urus, is contrary to the Odonian principles, right? Um, to, the, to that idea at the heart of Anaresti culture. Um, and since that's the case, since that you know, so the, there can be no there can be no, no sharing, right? All you can do is rebel against it. Um, yeah, Kate says, so Shevik is the heir to Odo, a truer Odonian than Odo herself. Uh, in a sense, um, yeah, so, oh, sorry, Kate was following up. She had just said, interesting that Odo, who inspired the creation of Anaris, didn't go there, couldn't leave Urus, uh, while Shevik, who is inspiring a more outward-looking Anaris, chooses to go back behind the wall. So that's why Shevik is the heir to Odo, a true Odonian, than Odo herself. Exactly, Kate. Well, we see that, right? Remember that scene when he's sitting there next to the statue, and the, the two of them, Odo and Shevik, are on the bench together, right? They're in Abani. Um and uh, and he realizes that Odo herself wasn't an Anaresti, right? He is, but she wasn't. Um, so yeah, we already saw that kind of suggested before. Um, remember, he's going to go one step further than Odo. And where is one step further? To go one step further is to come back, right? Um, an idea which begins to have a more poignant application at the end of the book, right? 
Um, at first, of course, going back meant returning to Anaris, or returning to returning to Urus from Anaris, right? Um, but of course, it also now begins to mean returning to Anaris from Urus once you've gone. Let's keep pushing here. You don't understand what time is, he said. You say that the past is gone. The future is not real. There is no change, no hope. You think Anaris is a future that cannot be reached, as your past cannot be reached. So this is when this is right after, remember, the Terran ambassador Kang has um, been talking, been telling the story of Terra, right, and what happened with Terra. So she's telling the story of Terra's past and how um, uh, they've given up on, you know, on Odonianism, you know, on the the the, the, the on idealism, right? Um, they've had to be purely pragmatic and authoritarian in order to survive. Right, so they went in for total and utter state control of absolutely everything, right, in order to make sure that uh, every for for utilitarian purposes, right, in order to make sure that everybody in the society, not everybody, but to make sure that the society survived. Um, and uh, anyway, so he's so he takes her up on this, um, but he takes her up first in the in physics terms. You don't understand what time is. You say the past is gone. Like we, we can't go back to those idealistic times because this is the reality that we live in now in Terra. Right? You say the past is gone. The future is not real. There is no change, no hope. You think Anaris is a future that cannot be reached as your past cannot be reached, as your past cannot be changed. So there is nothing but the, but the present, this Urus, the rich, real, stable present, the moment now. And you think that is something which can be possessed. You envy it a little. You think it's something you would like to have, but it's not real, you know. It is not stable, not solid. Nothing is. Things change, change. You cannot have anything. And least of all, can you have the present unless you accept with it the past and the future? Not only the past, but also the future. Not only the future, but also the past. Because they are real. Only their reality makes the present real. You will not achieve or even understand Urus unless you accept the reality, the enduring reality of Anaris. You are right. We are the key. But when you said that, you did not really believe it. You don't believe in Anaris. You don't believe in me, though I stand with you in this room at this moment. My people were right and I was wrong in this. We cannot come to you. You will not let us. You do not believe in change, in chance, in evolution. You would destroy us rather than admit our reality, rather than admit that there is hope. We cannot come to you. We can only wait for you to come to us. So much going on here. And uh, I am uh, trying to accelerate, accelerate towards the ending here. I can't really approach light speed and achieve re uh, 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 you know, measurable relativistic effects. But... Uh, but I do want to. I do want to move along. We see the application of simultaneity theory here, right? Past, present, future. Uh, notice how he points out. Um, notice how he points out that thinking about time in a purely sequency way, being locked into a sequency world, the same sequency world that makes communication between Terra and Urus almost impossible because of the 11-year gap, right? The sequency way of looking at the world 
notice where he argues that it leads? Uh, since you believe that the past and the you know, the future cannot be reached and the past can't be changed, right? That's that's the logical consequence of sequencing, right? All you have is the moment, right? Carpe diem, right? Seize the day. What's the problem with seizing the day? What a proprietarian attitude, right? You can't seize the day, right? You can't own it. You can't have it, but that's exactly what he argues, right? If you believe in sequencing, if that's your framework, um, past can't be uh, changed, the future can't be reached, right? If that's your framework, it's going to lead you to think that the present is something which can be possessed. Right? You've got to, the present needs to be, the now needs to become dispossessed right and it can that can only happen if you accept with you can you can uh least of all can you have the present unless you accept with it the past and the future right um time change and hope right hope is a future thing right fundamentally oriented towards the future if it becomes when it becomes present, it's no longer hoped hoped for, right? It's a it's a reality, right? Um, but the past and the future are both enduring realities, enduring realities like unto the present, right? To take your sequency and add to it simultaneity, right? Um, you can have all of these things at once. You're not locked into a present that was determined by your past and working towards a future that you can't reach or control, right? Um, because to do that will lead to despair, right? And then where does he? Um, and then where does he go from here? We cannot come to you. We can only wait for you to come to us. Um, why can't they come? Why can't Anaris come to them? Because they don't, she doesn't believe in change, in chance, in evolution. You would destroy us rather than admit our reality, rather than admit that there is hope. Anaris is the key, he says. But when you said that, he said you didn't, you didn't believe it. Right. And I think here he's kind of playing on key. Right. It is the key. It will unlock the door. Right. It can unlock the door. But notice how what he's saying here, his acknowledgement that his people were right and he was wrong is also there's a way in which that calls into question what the most enduring image in this entire book right that idea of the wall he's been wanting to unbuild walls and what he's acknowledging here this wall can't be unbuilt at least it can't be unilaterally unbuilt right 
And in a sense, if you think about it, unilaterally unbuilding a wall is altruistic, right? And that was indeed his attitude. Again, remember the things that Tyrion was saying back in that debate in chapter two, right? If, if the NRST society really is the best, right? If our way of, if our philosophy really is the best, what, then shouldn't we give it away, right? Shouldn't we be trying to help people? We do things right, you do things wrong, let us show you how to do things better. We might find that admirable, but it's altruistic, right? It's proprietarian, it's egoizing. Um, the unilateral unbuilding of a wall is egoizing as well. It's altruistic in the same way. Um, they don't... So it's interesting now, first he denied that Urus has anything to offer to Anaris, and now he's denying that Urus wants anything to do with Anaris, right? You have nothing to offer and you don't want us anyway, right? You won't let us come to you. Um, that's why his people were right. His people who didn't want him to go to them either, right? Um, yeah, and Kate Neville points out very rightly that this uh, is in a sense fulfilled, right? Um, that is, other societies coming to him when the, when the, the Hainish guy um, wants to come with him to Anaris. Kate, we're totally going to get there. We're absolutely going to get there uh, by the end. Let's keep going. Moving forward now into chapter 12, right? Backwards in time to right before his departure to Urus in the first place. Looking at his, at the argument with his mom, right, right with Rulag. Here's part of Rulag's argument against Badap. What's the difference, you'll say, between talking to a few Arasti on shortwave and talking to a few of them here in Abenai? What's the difference? What's the difference between a shut door and an open one? Let's open the door. That's what he's saying, you know, Amari. Let's open the door. Let the Orasti come. Six or eight pseudo-Odonians on the next freighter. Sixty or eighty Iyari profiteers on the one after. To look us over and see how we can be divided up as a property among the nations of Urus. And the next trip will be six or eight hundred armed ships of war. Guns, soldiers, an occupying force, the end of Anaris, the end of the promise. Our hope lies. It has lain for a hundred and seventy years in the terms of the settlement. No Erasti off the ships, except the settlers, then or ever. No mixing, no contact. To abandon that principle now is to say to the tyrants whom we defeated once, the experiment has failed. Come re-enslave us. Now, it's chapter 12. We've been well-trained, right? There's a lot of things that we can recognize here. I mean, obviously, right? Rulag can't possibly say what's the difference between a shut door and an open one, right? Without our perking up at that, right? Well, the difference between a shut door and an open one is that when the door is shut and locked, you're in prison, right? Locking a door, locking in and locking out is the same action, right? Um... She wants to keep up the wall, right? Notice also even just the terms that were just being used, like hope, right? The past and the future, and holding on to the present. 
Our hope lies it has lain for 170 years in the terms of the settlement. Our hope is hope lies in the past, right? This is interesting. Our hope for the future lies in the past. Um, no mixing, no contact. Keep the wall up. To abandon that principle is to say to the tyrants whom we defeated once, the experiment has failed. Come re-enslave us. <laughs> Rachel Draper says, Pseudo-Odonians? Aren't there a bunch of those already on Anaris? Ooh, burn, Rachel. Boy, you should have been there at that meeting to say that. That would have really set them on their heels. Actually, they probably have, would have started punching you in the face. At least that one guy would have. Um, ouch. Here's part of Shevik's reply. You see, he said, what we're after is to remind ourselves that we didn't come to Anaris for safety, but for freedom. If we all must, if we must all agree, all work together, we're no better than a machine. If an individual can't work in solidarity with his fellows, it's his duty to work alone, his duty and his right. We have been denying people that right. We've been saying more and more often, you must work with the others. You must accept the rule of the majority. But any rule is tyranny. The duty of the individual is to accept no rule, to be the initiator of his own acts, to be responsible. Only if he does so will the society live and change and adapt and survive. We are not subjects of a state founded upon law, but members of a society founded upon revolution. The revolution is within the individual spirit or it is nowhere. It is for all or it is nothing. If it is seen as having any end, it will never truly begin. We can't stop here. We must go on. We must take the risks. Rulag replied as quietly as he, but very coldly, you have no right to involve us all in a risk that private motives compel you to take. No one who will not go as far as I'm willing to go has any right to stop me from going, Shevik answered. Their eyes met for a second. Both looked down. We didn't come to Anaris for safety, but for freedom. Um, I can't help but remember Shevik running with the bleeding guy running away from the machine guns right? And complaining about the locked doors, right? Um, not just, darn it, I wish we could get through one of these doors and be safe. I wish we were on the other side of one of these locked doors so that we were safe, right? But rather, as long as you lock doors, you will never be free, right? Admittedly, again, machine guns in the street, being behind a locked door seems like a real good idea, right? I mean, that seems like that really... But um, but no, right? Not according to Shevik. Right? You lock yourself in behind, a, you're in prison, right? You're safe, but you're not free. Freedom and safety, not the same thing. And it's not safety that they came for, but freedom. Is it risky to connect with Oris? Sure, yeah, of course it is. Um, revolution is always risky, right? There's no safety in revolution. Um, and Karita, I too wonder what private motives she, Rulag, was thinking about just then. Um, yes, 
in fact, uh, the fact that this is Shevik and the mother, right, in conflict here, and even Badap doesn't know that she's his mom, right? I mean, Shevik's mom, right? Um, the fact that they're having this public confrontation, and we know the, at least we know something of the private tension between the two of them, right? But nobody else does, right? Um, therefore, Karita, the phrase, the whole, the very phrase private motives is a very conspicuous one in her mouth right there, right? Um, and it certainly does invite us to think about how the, their public dispute about policy and their private conflict with each other um, are related with each other. But I don't have time to think about that, but it is an interesting thing to think about. Um, yeah. Good, Kate. I was just going to come back to that. Kate uh, Neville says, the reason to reject contact is the same reason to reject Shevik's theory. It's a change from the status quo. I like how his theory, holding two aspects of time in mind at the same time, reflects his wish to hold both, individu in both individuality and communal solidarity in his soul at the same time. Exactly, Kate. So several things there, right? One is that the argument that uh, Rulag makes sound sounds really compelling, um, but it's essentially like a social sequency theory, right? Um, it is on the social level uh, what sequency is uh, with physics, right? With time. Um, yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that very much. Um, you don't have to submit. The individual, in order for the individual to be in solidarity with the society, um, he does not have to conform, right? It seems like that's logically necessary. That if you are going to have a mutually, you know, a, a mutual society, a, a society of solidarity, that you have to you have to subordinate the individual, right? Obviously, how else could you be mutually existing? Um, but then you would just have Thu, right? Um, the you know the individuals subordinating themselves to the collective, like Chafoyalis does, right? To the state? No, no. Exactly, Kate. It's simultaneity thinking, right? The individual and the communal simultaneously, right? The right of the individual to rebel, a society founded upon revolution, right? Um, but being in solidarity with, you know, with your brothers at the same time. Um, very good. And Kate, but, but yeah, as I was, I was going to bring us back to that very first quotation from Sabo, right? Shevik's ideas are a break from the status quo. It's egoizing, right? Just as Rulag is, is saying, you know, how, how dare you take this upon yourself, right? Just because you want to do this thing, you're going to bring all of us into danger, right? Um, it is like, it's not exactly the same as, but it is like Sobel's defense of the status quo, of sequency theory, right? Um, everybody agrees on this. Since the settlement, everyone has agreed on this, right? Um, who are you to contradict that? Um, and again, his response, I'm an Odonian, I'm an individual, right? And that an individual must be freedom is the essential idea, right? Um, let's not 
make prisons. Last segment. Almost there. Um, I think about the ending and going home. And I want to draw your attention to two passages that really jumped out at me the second time reading the book, but which I've been saving for the last class for like a couple months now. Odo's epitaph. Laia Aseo Odo. 698 to 769. To be whole is to be part. True voyage is return. First of all, notice how um, Iotic her name makes her sound. What a reminder that Odo was not Anaresti. Right? Look at all those vowels. She has three consonants in her entire name. Right? All three of her names put together. Each one has only one consonant. Right? Um, uh, just like I mean, so the fact that her native language is obviously Iotic, right, is really kind of borne in on me, right, when I when I read that. But anyway, this is her epitaph. This is what is on her tombstone when Shevet goes to visit her tombstone, uh, her burial site uh, in Urus. To be whole is to be part. True voyage is return. Um, and Kate, exactly, you don't really notice all the vowels when it's just Odo. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, of course, you do notice the fact that Odo is a really short name, right? You know, all of the um, all of the the NRST names have five or six letters. Um, but but uh, but 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 yeah, it, the 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 eoticness, right, of her name doesn't jump out at you nearly as much until you hear Laia Aseo Odo. Um, but anyhow, to be whole is to be part. True voyage is return. Two lines, right? And two quick elements that I would point to here. First, the paradox of the first line, right? To be whole is to be part. Notice how her epitaph points to something which conceptually works kind of like simultaneity theory, right? Um, the same kind of paradox. To be whole is to be part. Um, true voyage is return. True voyage is return. Remember, Shevik thought that. And Shevik thought that um, when um, Shevik thought that when he was thinking of going a step beyond Odo, right? Remember the uh, the Anaresti, like you're no longer explorers if you don't if you never report back, right? If you never come back, um, you're just exiles, right? To take the next step, to go one step further, to go to 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 continue, right? The voyage that Odo began is to come back, right? And there it is on her tombstone. True voyage is return. Um, how does this help us? How does this set us up for the ending? True voyage is return. Well, there's another passage from chapter two. Back to young Shevik. Talk about your passages which 
first time reading them were like three feet over my head, right? And only saw any significance in the second time. And then when I reread it, I'm like, whoa, mind blown. It was a joy to him to come back to the regional institute, to see the low hills patchy with bronze-leaved scrub holum, the kitchen gardens, domiciles, dormitories, workshops, classrooms, laboratories, where he had lived since he was 13. He would always be one for whom the return was as important as the voyage out. To go was not enough for him, only half enough. He must come back. In such a tendency was already foreshadowed, perhaps, the nature of the immense exploration he was to undertake in the extremes of the comprehensible. He would most likely not have embarked in that years-long enterprise had he not found had he not had profound assurance that return was possible, even though he himself might not return, that indeed the very nature of the voyage, like a circumnavigation of the globe, implied return. You shall not go down twice to the same river, nor can you go home again. That he knew. Indeed, it was the basis of his view of the world. Yet from that acceptance of transience, he evolved his vast theory, wherein what is most changeable is shown to be fullest of eternity, and your relationship to the river, and the river's relationship to you and to itself, turns out to be at once more complex and more reassuring than mere lack of identity. You can go home again, the general temporal theory asserts, so long as you understand that home is a place where you have never been. Um, <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, you can go home again, so long as you understand that home is a place where you have never been. Um, okay. All right. So that's reassuring. Uh, I am, I'm reassured. I'm reassured. That's totally, uh, that's wonderful. Um, good. Kate says, a voyage is something which takes time, so return a function of simultaneity. Well, I don't know, but Kate, of course, it's impossible to avoid that, right? Um, remember, we're going to be ending up with the ansible, right? Or pointing to the ansible anyway. Um, so we have the idea that... Um, the the sequency voyage right is something that can be held simultaneously at the same time not the physical voyage in that case right but the um the voyage of ideas just as we get the parallel between physical voyage physical travel here for him on anaris uh and uh the the travel the voyage of his ideas right um in such a tendency, right, to go was not enough for him, only half enough he must come back. In such a tendency was already foreshadowed perhaps the nature of his immense exploration he was to undertake in, into the extremes of the comprehensible. So there, Kate, right, we have the explicit parallel between his, his worldly travels and his intellectual travels, right? But it's not just paralleling the two. Um, the tendency for him not to find the voyage out enough, right? That need to come back is what foreshadowed um, the nature of his exploration, of his intellectual exploration, right? Um, he wouldn't have embarked on the voyage, the intellectual voyage, excuse me. He wouldn't have embarked on the intellectual voyage had he not had the profound assurance that return was possible.
even though he might not himself return. Okay, so it's not about him coming back necessarily, but he wouldn't have set out if he didn't think return was possible. But wait, that indeed the very nature of the voyage implied return, like a circumnavigation of the globe, right? Good, yes, no, circumnavigation is going in a straight line to make a cycle, right? Circumnavigation, um, moving what seems to be moving in a straight line on a flat plane, but which actually turns out to be moving in a different dimension, right? So that when you finish your sequential voyage, you end up where you began, right? That's like a combination of sequence. You know, so circumnavigation in that sense is an image, right, of, si of the combination of simultaneity and sequency, right? Um, so it's not just return needs to be possible. It's not just like let's put a trail of breadcrumbs behind us or or maybe uh, unravel a, a, a unravel a queue of thread right, in order to, 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 to hang on to my line to get back, because that's a pure sequency way of looking at things. Right, like I'm going to tie a string at the entrance, and I'm going to, I'm going to then go through the labyrinth, and I'm going to unravel a cue, so that, or the clue, excuse me, so that when I get to the end with my clue, or to the middle, rather, I can, I can go back. That's a pure sequency way of looking at going back, right? But it's not like that. It's like circumnavigation, right? Um, he embarks because he understands, he has some kind of intuitive understanding that going implies returning. Um, it's an essential, true voyage is a return. And by the way, um, notice, uh, notice the page numbers here. Oh, I didn't give the page number of photos. <laughs> Oops, that was a mistake on my part. Uh, it's 84, I think, is the page uh, in my edition of uh, of Odo's epitaph. The point is, it's 30 pages later. Right? It's it's uh, um, it's later in his life, and it's uh, it, it's it's a sub it's a subsequent chapter as well in the book. Um, but again, another one like the the use of word voyage in this passage, right? Um, One for whom the return was as important as the voyage out. Why does she even use the word voyage here? That doesn't even make sense in a literal sense, right? You know, voyaging. He's not. He's not traveling by sea, right? He's he's going by train <clears throat> or by truck to where he was going and 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 how he came back. He did take a dirigible to Abenai, you know, but but it's not a voyage. She seems to be anticipating the very terminology used, the very word used on Odo's tombstone, right? When talking about this here, um, you can go home again so long as you understand that home is a place where you have never been, right? So again, this is now. No, I'm coming back to your observation about circumnavigation, <clears throat> right? Going in a straight line to make a circle. Um, Returning home is not the same as never leaving, right? There's a, if you kind of take the paradox, it might sort of seem like that, right? Um, but that's not the point. When you circumnavigate the globe, you return to the place where you left, but it's not the same, right? 
he accepts the reality that you can't go home again, right? No, you can't go home again. Um, the end of the journey is not the place where it began. Remember, to return to Urus is to go further. It's not to go back. It's not to return. It's not to give up, right? Um, you can return home so long as you understand that home is a place where you have never been, right? So the return, going and returning, taking the journey, but only because the journey implies return, um, it brings you back home, but only because home is a place where you have never been. Um, the journey is necessary. You might say that a circumnavigation is pointless. In fact, you could call it sterile, right? You could say it doesn't have any organic utility, arguably, right? Um, I mean, why go all that distance in order to just end up back to where you were? But the point is, you're never back to where you were, right? Um, and you can't return home unless you understand that home is not a place where you've been. If you don't set out on the journey, it wasn't really home. Look at how he's looking at the regional institute when he comes back to it, right? Um, it's a joy to him to see this place he had lived since he was 13. Had he not left it, he would not have been taking joy in the bronze-leaved scrub holum, right, outside. Um, having left and come back, now he understands that home. Is, he'd been to that, he'd been to the regional institute before, right? But he had never been home until he left and returned, right? Um, having done that, now it's home. Um, last passage. This is this is from chapter thirteen. This is him talking to. Oh shoot, I'm forgetting the name of the Hanish guy now. Um, remind me of the Hanish guy. His name. Okay. Um, things are a little broken loose on Anaris. That's what my friends on the radio have been telling me about. It was our purpose all along, our syndicate, this journey of mine, to shake things up, to stir up, to break some habits, to make people ask questions, to behave like anarchists. All this has been going on while I was gone. So, you see, nobody is quite sure what happens next. And if you land with me, even more gets broken loose. I cannot push too far. I cannot take you as an official representative of some foreign government. That will not do on Anaris. I understand that. Once you are there, once you walk through the wall with me, then as I see it, you are one of us. We are responsible to you and you to us. You become an Aresti with the same options as all the others. But they are not safe options. Freedom is never very safe. <clears throat> we see him in the next chapter, but a long time later, right? Uh, as he's returning back to home, which wasn't home because he'd never been there before, right? Um, we see him once again choosing freedom over safety, right? Freedom is never very safe.
Yeah, Kate, I like that he says that too. Kate, uh, Kate likes walks through the wall, not going through a door. Walking through the wall is different from taking down the wall. You're right, Kate. He's not unbuilding walls anymore, right? He acknowledges that the wall is... Now, he's referring to the literal wall, presumably. That same wall that we met at the beginning of the story, right? But, but yeah, Kate, we can't possibly... I mean, I can't... Like, constitutionally incapable of just thinking of the physical wall now right um and i think kate you're picking up on in ex a, the way you're picking on it seems to me exactly right um that's a really important line whether he intended it meaningfully or not right it's a very conspicuous line um to walk through the wall kate you notice what what you can't have if you can walk through walls what can't you have person who can walk through walls can never be in prison, right? Um, yeah, yeah, freedom, exactly. That's that's freedom, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, this is, and Kate, I think it was you before who was talking about how the the passage um, earlier in his conversation with Kang, the Terran ambassador, um, was, uh, and quick, somebody remind me of the name of the Hanish guy. Um, in his conversation with Kang, the, 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 the Terran ambassador, um, he was saying, remember he was saying how, you know, we cannot come to you, you won't let us, you won't have us, you must come to us, right? Um, uh, We do have, that does seem to be an, an anticipation of what we see happening here, right? What we see him talking about here. Um, the Hainish dude, Ketho, thanks, Noam. Ketho, the Hainish dude, right, is coming to them. He wants to come. He wants to, he wants to, he wants to see Anaris, right? Presumably to stay on Anaris. Um, and he explains, here's what will happen if you come, right? Here's what waiting for you to come to us is going to look like. You become NRSD with the same options as all the others. Not safe options, right? But we are responsible to you and you to us. So when he says, you have to come to us, Shevik isn't erecting a wall. Right. If you come through the wall, if you walk through the wall, um, then you can join with us. Right. Then now we will be in solidarity. The kind of solidarity that he was hoping to build between Urus and Anaris can't happen. You can't unbuild the wall between Urus and Anaris and just create solidarity. Right. But if people are willing to walk through the wall then we will be responsible to you and you to us, right? There can be solidarity. Um, but it's not safe. You might get stoned to death, right? Freedom is never very safe. Now, Arthur makes an interesting point. Um, if you can walk through walls, right? If you're insubstantial, then you, you can't hold anything, right? Your hands will be empty. 
now I you know when she's talking about empty hands I, I, I don't think that that's how we're supposed to understand it but it is kind of cool Arthur right because uh, you can't possess anything right it's impossible to be a if you were immaterial or if you're if you are insubstantial uh, it's like is a uh, is the opposite of materialism immaterialism <laughs> Arthur right um, yeah yeah, and without possessions, you're truly free, right? Exactly. If you don't possess anything, then you are dispossessed um, and able to walk through walls, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Noam, yeah, Ketho does hope to return home, but in this context, right, to the, the voyage implies the returning home. He's gonna he's gonna come to Anaris and this will be a circumnavigation, right? Um so what happens? What happens next? You know, joking at the beginning of class about this uh book ending open endedly, right? Unsatisfyingly, um ambiguously. What happens next? <laughs> Mine ambiguity says Arthur. <laughs> yeah, we we uh, um, we don't know what happens next. But notice even that question: what happens next? You see, nobody is quite sure what happens next. Um, what happens next is a sequency question, right? Um, to ask that question is to is to be thinking in a sequency framework. Right? It's not about next. Um, Just as Shevik has derived his general temporal theory, so we are brought at the end. I think it's super important to this book that it does not end with a period, in a sense, you know? Um, uh, that, it, that it doesn't... Uh, it's important that it doesn't end with a, a final event, right? only with the anticipation of the voyage home, like the end of the circumnavigation. Um, it, uh, with sort of Odo's next step, right? So there's, there, the, in those ways, it is a satisfying ending, right? But of course, we want to know what happens. We want to know what the last event is. But there is no last event, right? And by not telling us by not answering the simple question, does Shevik get his brains beat in when he arrives back home? Right? Is he going to be able to be reunited with Takvir and his children? Um, we don't know. right? But I think it's important that we not know. And not just because she's being all mysterious and suspenseful and wants to leave, and wants to leave us wanting more or any, anything silly like that. right? Um, instead, it... Um, forces us not to... The ending of this book would be deeply unsatisfying if it ended by satisfying our desire for sequence, right? Um, instead, it ends with, not exactly with paradox, but with this sort of suspension, right? Past, future, 
present, hope, change, right? What uh, uh, this has challenged our whole view of time and the way that we think about all of these things. Um, if you say to this book, but I want to know what happens next, what's this book going to say to you? Don't ego eyes, right? Um, but it's going to say more now than just don't ego eyes. It's going to say, you can't possess the present, right? You want to make it present. The future is inaccessible to you, right? You want to bring it into the present because you can possess the present. And then you'll be satisfied because you'll have it. And so then you can put the ending of this book on a shelf, right, among your possessions. It's not how it works, right? Um, there can't, that can't be how it works. This book would be fundamentally untrue to the things that it's doing if it were doing that, right? Um, and that is freaking amazing. I mean, it is unbelievable. I, I, am, I am just astounded at how well she pulls off the, uh, the adaptation of the structure of her story to the ideas and themes that she is unfolding, especially given how... Uh, what was that phrase uh, from the previous slide? Um, undertaking the extremes of the comprehensible? Yeah, and to undertake the extremes of the comprehensible within the very structure of her own narrative, right? Gutsy, unbelievable, unbelievably hard to pull off. But I think she really does it um, uh, amazingly. So, um, so I leave the dispossessed in the same state of mind that I so often am with Ursula Le Guin, but much more so than I have ever been before. And that is amazed, astounded, uh, in, in deepest admiration for what she's done, for her ability. But, you know, I compare it to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. The only thing these two books necessarily have in common is that both of them, those are the two Mythgard Academy books that I had never read before when we started them, um, or, you know, when they were elected. And, but I promise you, I'm going to reread Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell sooner than I'm going to reread The Dispossessed. Uh, um, I had more fun with Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, though, though The Dispossessed impresses the heck out of me. Uh, as, a, as a literary experiment, as a, uh, I, I just an amazing way of conveying really complex and interesting ideas. Uh, it's incredible. Um, anyway, thank you guys for joining me. This has been awesome and really fun. And uh, um, we're going to, we'll convene again for the return of the shadow really soon. And uh, I, I look forward to, to, to getting back into that. Uh, as I said, I've been looking forward to doing the history of the Lord of the Rings for a while. It's going to be awesome. Uh, tell all your friends, let's, uh, I, I, I'd love to see uh, uh, a, a, a bunch of new people jump in with us <clears throat> on the return of the shadow. So um, <clears throat> anyway, thanks very much for, uh, for joining me and I will see you guys soon ish. Probably not going to be that long week or two at, or two, two to three weeks at most. 
Uh, so uh, thanks, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. And I will see you again soon. Bye now.